Welcome to a History of Submarines podcast. Episode 3.2, The Kaiser Pirate, Part 2 of our series about World War I. We ended Part 1 with Germany's decision to declare all-out unrestricted submarine warfare in an effort to bleed Great Britain white. By now, the Western Front had reached a stalemate, and both sides, the Allies and the Central Powers, accepted that the war could only be won by attrition, and thus a blockade war, essentially. Germany declared large swaths of the waters surrounding the British Isles as danger zones. In those zones, Berlin said submarines would be free to attack merchants without warning, in clear violation of the rules of the prize laws. Germans were immediately accused of savagery and barbarism. The British press called them pirates, the French press bandits, or the submarine pest, and with good reason. Because ramming torpedoes into a ship in the dead of night without any warning was a death warrant. Ships could explode or sink within minutes, the crew dying a horrible drowning death in the middle of a fast and cold ocean. Berlin countered that ever since the start of the war, British merchants had illegally been flying flags of neutral countries. Individual merchants had faked their surrender only to try and ram submarines when they got close. In fact, the British had started to send so-called Q-ships, or mystery ships, to sea. These were modified civilian merchants with guns hidden behind camouflaged panels. When a submarine surfaced to announce its presence and demand the ship's surrender under the prize laws rules, a so-called panic party, a part of the ship's crew, would rush to the lifeboats and hurriedly move away, deceiving the submarine's commander into thinking that it was safe to approach and board. Then, when the submarine was close enough, the hidden crew that had stayed behind would kick down the camouflage panels and fire the guns at the submarine at point-blank range. Also, the Brits had started to arm merchants with guns, so they at least had a chance to fight back if a submarine surfaced and used its guns to fire on the merchant. In London, Winston Churchill, then Lord of the Admiralty, had declared that arming merchants would force submarines to refrain from servicing and using their deck guns. As we shall see later, this tactic also had another effect. All this enraged the Germans, who opined that they were given ample arguments, a permission structure, if you will, to resort to methods that were safer to their submarines, while more effective in sinking ships, which meant attacking ships without warning from just below the water surface using torpedoes. If they could no longer surface and threaten merchants with their deck guns, torpedoes were the only option left. The arming of merchants was also in direct violation of the Hague Convention of 1907, which in one of the agreed laws of water states that if a civilian merchant is armed with a gun or cannon, it thus becomes a warship. Either way, U-boat commander von Forstner, whom we talked about in part one, welcomed the move in his diary. He wrote, quote, Our war against the merchant main of the Allied nations began in February 1915, throughout the war zone established around the English and French coasts. Day after day, the number increased of steamers and sailboats that we had sunk, and commercial relations between all countries were seriously menaced. The English were forced to believe our threats. Even the shipping trade of the neutrals had greatly diminished. The mighty British fleet no longer dared to patrol the seas, and the merchants were told to fend for themselves and were even armed for the purpose. Unquote. The Germans went on a rampage, and the British didn't seem to know how to counter it. They had destroyers, yes, but no sonar systems like we know them now. 
There were some early experiments with hydrophones, essentially microphones that were lowered into the water, but they were too crude to allow you to tell the difference between background noise and ships, and too big to be fitted onto ships anyway. And then, even if the Allies had had something like sonar, they didn't have much to fight submarines with. Options left were ramming, for instance. The depth charge was still very much in the experimental stage. But above all, merchant vessels were everywhere. It was easy pickings for the submarines. All they had to do was lay low in a busy shipping lane and wait. Belligerent nations tried everything to prevent submarines from entering the harbors. They laid minefields, put up metal nets, laid floating cables, hoping to ensnare submarines. The British and French were only just starting to cooperate on dividing their respective coastal waters into patrol areas for blimps and seaplanes, who could sometimes get lucky and spot shallow submarines on sunny days. The British actually developed the so-called Lance Bomb, which was basically an artillery shell screwed to a broomstick. Soldiers who had seen a submarine just below or on the surface could then throw the bomb at it, as if throwing a spear at a lion. So, see, we're back with spears again. The Lance Bombs were more dangerous to the sailors. Records indicate that during the entire four-year war, one German submarine was actually lightly damaged by a British sailor using the medieval device. But, alas for the Germans, the first unrestricted warfare offensive didn't really work. As such, German submarines didn't just sink Allied vessels, but also those of neutral nations. Soon, neutral governments like those of the Netherlands and the United States were sending official protests through Berlin. And most of the time, Berlin shrugged. But not everyone was on the same page in the German capital. The Kaiser and his government were well aware that they had to keep the United States out of the war. This was a war of attrition, after all, and adding another major player to the Allied side would be counterproductive. America joining the war on the Allied side would open a big can of worms, especially now that the war on land had become a war of attrition. He who had most resources would win that kind of war. The goal was essentially to blockade Britain and France so as to cut them off from food supplies and materials to make war equipment with, and yes, that would mean sinking basically any ship that went to and fro those countries. Still, the other strategic goal had to be keeping the U.S. out of the war, so Berlin was nervous. As a result, on April 22, 1915, the German embassy in Washington, D.C. put ads in 50 American newspapers explaining the German position and warning ship owners and the import-export companies about the potential danger. The worst-case scenario came calling on May 7, 1915, when German U-boat U-20 under the command of Walter Schwieger encountered the passenger liner Lusitania near the Irish coast, as it was on its last leg to Liverpool, hailing from New York. The Lusitania was a British ship registered in Liverpool, built on a Scottish wharf, and operated by Cunard Line. Between its launch in 1906 and its last voyage in 1914, it had sailed the Liverpool-New York Line 202 times. It was a four-funnel ship, approximately 240 meters, or 780 feet in length, and could hold a lot of cargo and more than 2,000 passengers and crew. So, yeah, we're talking a pretty big ship. The ship was also famous. Cunard Lion, the operator of the ship, had been accused of ordering the captain to exchange the British Union Jack flag for the American Stars and Stripes in an effort to deceive any submarine commander peering through his periscope. But it wouldn't matter. Any submarine skipper would recognize the ocean liner by sight. It was thought that the Lusitania was fast enough to outrun German subs, but not those who lied in wait. It has also been reported that the captain of the Lusitania slowed down because of fog. In the afternoon of May 7, the U-20 fired one torpedo into the Lusitania's bow. Soon after, a huge secondary explosion followed, and the majestic liner sank within 18 minutes after the torpedo's impact. In all, almost 1,200 people perished, including, crucially, 
128 Americans. The U-20 returned to port triumphantly, but during its voyage back home, all hell broke loose. The British used the sinking of the Lusitania as a propaganda tool, nicknaming U-20's commander Walter Schwieger the baby killer. The American government filed a furious protest in Berlin, while the British government did everything it could to fan the flames. The Germans coolly reposted that the British government itself had categorized the Lusitania as an armed merchantman, that even official British publications had dubbed the ship an auxiliary cruiser, and that the ship's public manifesto for the last journey even listed such things as rifle cartridges. So far as Berlin was concerned, the Lusitania was a valid target. The Kaiser's government even accused the British of callousness, allowing so many civilians to sail on a liner while carrying ammunition in its hold. A German artist made a coin commemorating the sinking, lashing out at the supposed callousness of the British. One side of the coin showed a skeleton under Cunard Line banners selling tickets to a line of civilians, of which one is holding a newspaper that holds the warning not to sail to Britain. At the top edge of the coin is a line stating Geschäfte über alles, or business above all else. To this day, people on both sides of the Atlantic still engage in flame wars about who is ultimately responsible for the death of so many civilians. This podcast is not taking any sides, except to say that after the war, relatives of Americans killed filed for damages against German government. A U.S. court ruled that despite everything that went on at the time, the responsibility for the Lusitania sinking ultimately lay with the German submarine that fired the torpedo. So, yes, German was to blame, the court ruled, and it finally paid all, paid all damages in 1925. For the submarine war effort, the Lusitania incident did not change much, really. The unrestricted warfare in the so-called danger zones went on unimpeded. German submarines were now on average sinking two commerce vessels a day. This ranged from small steamers bringing crates of whiskey to Norway to beautiful ocean liners like the Lusitania and everything in between. Yet even though neutral operators scaled down shipping to and from Britain, British wars were keeping up ship reduction, replacing those lost. Meanwhile, back in Berlin, the nervousness remained. Three months later, U-boat U-24 under the command of Rudolf Schneider sank the SS Arabic, another Grand Ocean liner. This one operated by the White Star Line, the company that had also operated the famous Titanic. The U-24 was renowned. It was responsible for the first sinking of a commerce vessel without warning in October 1914. And in January 1, it had downed the battleship Formidable, which had sent a shockwave through London. And although casualties were light this time, with 40 people drowned, including three Americans, it infuriated the United States government to the point where it was threatening to break off diplomatic relations. Berlin realized that this time they would need something tangible to show the Americans. And also, the Germans had made their calculations. It was now six months after the offensive started, and aside from the fact that Germany simply didn't have enough submarines yet to sink more British ships that they could replenish through new ship construction, Britain was clearly not brought to its knees. The risk of bringing a new powerful force against Germany into the war was starting to outweigh the results. So Berlin announced that the unrestricted warfare would end, that they would once again abide by the prize laws, and decided to move submarines to the Mediterranean Sea. The thinking behind this was that there was a far less chance of killing Americans there, while their allies, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Turkey, needed help fighting the British and the French navies. Italy, which switched sides against Austria-Hungary in 1915 and Germany in 1916, partly because of the German submarine antics, while Turkey had joined sides with the Central Powers. So we look to the Mediterranean Sea, where Germany moved this campaign to starve Britain and severely hamper France. The British and French imported a lot of goods from their Asian and African colonies, and so Germany hoped that by organizing choke points at Gibraltar, in the straits between Malta and the northern side of the Suez Canal, 
it could bottleneck Allied merchant shipping. What followed was a highly successful campaign in which more than 400 ships were sunk in 1916 alone. One commander, Lothar Arnaud de la Perriere of U-35, became the most successful U-boat captain of World War I and actually of all time, sinking no fewer than 193 ships, most of them in the Mediterranean, for a total of more than 450,000 tons. Arnaud de la Perriere preferred using the U-boat's deckhand to sink vessels and is said to have strictly followed the prize laws. At the time, Germany entered the fray proper in the Mediterranean in 1916. The French and the British had tried to bottle up the Austro-Hungarian fleet. Yes, the Austro-Hungarian navy was a thing back then. Nowadays, of course, the small countries have no coastlines whatsoever, but in those days, the massive territory of the double monarchy of Austria-Hungary included coastlines along the Adriatic coast of what are now Croatia, Montenegro, and Slovenia to the east of Italy. The Austro-Hungarians had a number of assorted submarines, which they had bought from different countries, among them the United States, France, and of course, Germany. And for a nation with such a small and therefore submarine fleet, they did some pretty outstanding work. Austrian Captain Georg von Trapp made history for being the first submarine commander to sink an enemy warship with torpedoes at night. Another first in submarine history, courtesy of World War I. The Austro-Hungarian Navy first targeted the British and French warships, but were then faced with an enemy on their own doorstep, starting in May 1915, when Italy switched sides and declared war on its arch-enemy, Austria-Hungary. Italy had secretly signed a pact with the French and the British, in which they would gain large parts of disputed territories from a defeated Austria-Hungary. But again, in all this, submarines played a prominent role. The German U-boat U-38 sank the Italian ocean liner Ancona in November 1915 while flying the Austro-Hungarian flag as Germany was not at war yet with Italy. War with Germany would be declared a year later. Eleven Americans died, leading to a forceful protest by the U.S. government. As a result, like the Germans in the north, the Austro-Hungarians committed to no longer targeting passenger ships. And a funny little side note for those of you who are into old musical films and know the classic movie The Sound of Music. Well, I just mentioned Captain Georg von Trapp of the Austro-Hungarian Navy. Yes, the Austrian von Trapp family actually existed. Don't know if they sang, but they existed. Georg von Trapp, who used to serve as a submarine commander in the Austrian-Hungarian Navy, was one of the monarchy's U-boat aces. And if that wasn't all coincidental enough for you, Georg von Trapp was absolutely fascinated by submarines and he pushed to be transferred to the fledgling Austro-Hungarian submarine branch when he could. Von Trapp's first wife was Agatha Whitehead, who happened to be the daughter of Robert Whitehead, who developed a torpedo on the deadly weapon as we know it today, and which Von Trapp used to sink his targets. Now there, see, this is the kind of fun stuff you pick up on in this podcast. So, back to serious business. Submarines, World War I. So the Austro-Hungarian underwater navy wasn't a very big force. Yes, they certainly showed their worth, but they still needed help. And help the Germans did. Like they did at Belgian seaports on the channel on the western front, which they occupied, the Germans sent submarines in parts by rail to ports of Pola and Kataro on the Croatian coast. There they were assembled and put to sea. They also sent submarines through the Gibraltar Straits into the Med. Unlike during World War II, U-boats could slip through the straits fairly easily in World War I simply because the Allies did not yet have adequate submarine detection technologies. The British and French, and later also Italian navies, tried to bottle up the Austro-Hungarian navy in the Adriatic by use of nets and ships. It was again a blockade. And like in the Channel in the North Sea, it was pretty effective in preventing the Austro-Hungarian service fleet, yes they had that, from breaking into the Mediterranean and hooking up with their Turkish allies. 
But just like in the North Sea, submarines easily slipped through and wreaked havoc. Ship losses actually got so bad that the British and the French diverted most of their shipping from Asia away from the Suez Canal, forcing merchant owners to reroute their ships along the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa and along the West African coastline. So yes, ships could sail from Asia and Africa to Great Britain, but it took them a lot longer. Meanwhile, in early 1916, the German naval command had convinced the Kaiser's government that submarines should once again try for unrestricted warfare around Great Britain. They cited the now widespread British policy of arming merchants with guns, making it increasingly dangerous for submarine commanders to abide by the limiting price law rules. Winston Churchill had been right and wrong. The policy of arming merchants was now forcing Germany's hands, Germany said. We really had no other option, Your Honor. Whether this could have been foreseen by the British is still being debated, because unfortunately at the end of World War II, apparently a lot of the uh, old imperial archives were destroyed. So we really don't have the notes of all the meetings of the German government at the time. The Kaiser's government relented and, signing the measures the British had been taking, announced they would resort back to unrestricted submarine warfare, although they would ignore ocean liners to prevent angering the Americans. The strategy soon failed again. On March 24, 1916, the Germans again infuriated Washington. Submarine UB-29, a mine layer, attacked and severely damaged the SS Sussex, a ferry that sailed between the British and French coasts. The torpedo tore away the entire bow and the ferry was lucky to stay afloat. The submarine commander later said he mistook the steamer for a mine layer. Several renowned passengers died and a number of American passengers were wounded in the attack. American President Wilson now sent the German government an ultimatum. Either they would immediately cease their unrestricted warfare practice or the United States would break off diplomatic relations, which was seen as the first step to a declaration of war. To the dismay of German naval high command, the German chancellor backed down at the end of April. Once again, the unrestricted offensive was called off. Now was German naval high command's time to be infuriated. Instead of going back to having a submarine shot off the water by armed merchants, the leading Admiral Reinhard Scheer recalled all submarines to the North Sea in support of conventional strategy. Convenient because it was around this time that the German high seas fleet got more active in the North Sea. Part of the fleet ventured out of its safe harbor for an action in the Dogger Bank area to the east of the English coast. The Germans had taken to bombarding English coastal towns to lure the British fleet from its den, so as to take out British ships piecemeal. This strategy did not succeed. There followed the infamous Battle of Jutland, or the Battle of Skagerrak, as the Germans call it. This battle between the two service fleets was inconclusive, but its importance on how the rest of the war evolved cannot be understated. It indefinitely locked the German service fleet up in its harbors, leading the German Navy command to later drop all inhibitions and switch to more dramatic submarine strategies. At the Battle of Jutland itself, fought at the end of May and start of June 1916, neither the Brits or the Germans involved many submarines. It was only shortly after this famously inclusive battle that German naval command decided to try and lay a trap with a prominent role for submarines. Once again, the Germans tried to lure the British into a bad position, this time using submarines who would lie in wait. Unfortunately for the Germans, the British weren't just masters of the high seas in World War I, they were also ahead in code breaking and listening in on German naval radio transmissions. Thanks to several lucky breaks, the British were able to lay their hands on German naval and diplomatic codebooks early in the war. Thanks to this, the British were able to make educated guesses about German intentions throughout the war. 
It would prove to be especially fateful in the first battle of the Atlantic that was fought in 1917 and 1918, which will be the focus of the third and fourth part of this episode on submarines in World War I. Ironically, it was the sinking of a British warship, the Nottingham, by German U-boat U-52 that got British Admiral Sir John Jellicoe thinking and making him suspicious that he was sailing into a trap not made of surface ships, but perhaps submarines. The British Grand Fleet was still miles away from the area where the German U-boats were lying in wait. Although Jellicoe wasn't sure whether it was mine or a torpedo that had sunk to Nottingham, he decided to not take any chances and turned his fleet around. And so the British and German fleets sailed back to their respective harbors and back to the status quo. Which in this case still meant that the British would continue their blockade of Germany in the North Sea and the Channel, and that the German high seas fleet would remain locked in their harbors. Another factor that drove German high command to try and take the battle to the Brits was that Germany was starting to feel the pinch of the British blockade. It had become clear that Germany had become dependent on quite a few important goods, for which it proved hard to develop alternatives. Meanwhile, Allied submarines were moving into new theaters of operation. British submarines helped the Russians in the Baltic, sinking various German warships. Around the Dardanelles, British and French subs attacked Turkish warships, while Italy, now in the war on the Allied side, lent its submarines and torpedo boats to the effort. At the end of 1916, Germany had fully embraced the submarine. Research and development of new submarines was, was passing at breakneck speed. Newspapers wrote jubilantly about the submarine aces and their adventures. Like the Japanese would in World War II, Germany was not afraid to experiment. In an effort to circumvent the British blockade, the Imperial Navy had a new type of submarines developed, merchant submarines. A new class, the Deutschland-type submarine, was to be solely used as an underwater blockade runner. What made these U-boats so special was their range and the room available to stash goods. The Deutschland made a few high-profile visits to American ports. Didn't work out, though. The submarines disappointed, and the Imperial Navy soon took to control them as fighting U-boats and designating them as Type U-151. Their long-range fuel capability allowed them to operate for long periods and in the deep oceans. With service ships confined to their ports, Germany also had to expand their number of submarine mine layers. The mine layers would stealthily lay mines in busy sea lanes and outside enemy ports. They built close to a hundred of these, or about a third of the entire submarine production during the war. In two weeks, part three of this four-part episode on the history of submarines during World War I will drop. We will see how at the end of 1916 and early 1917, Germany enters a perfect storm. It's at the mercy of the British blockade, the demands of a huge military that must be fed, and the worst harvest in decades, thanks to a brutal winter. Because of this perfect storm, Germany let go of the brakes and went for all-out unrestricted warfare, and in so doing, threatened to bring Britain to its knees. But it was not a choice of convenience, and Berlin knew it, because they were well aware of the risks. As we shall see, it would sound a death knell for the German Empire, while the British Admiralty swallowed its pride and finally, finally embraced the one solution that would bring an end to the U-boat scourge. <laughs> <laughs> 